Good morning, good morning, Rabbi Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. I want to give a shout out before we begin this class to those that might be watching live on iTorah. And I want to give a shout out to Sonny uh, Dewar, my dear, dear friend, who pushed me again and again and again to uh, figure out a way to do the class live. And we actually are doing the live stream. And it's been quite a few days um, because it's a little bit technical to be able to get it set up that we've not been able to do for the last couple days. But Baruch Hashem, now we are uh, live streaming there and as well on all the other platforms as well. So we did that not at the expense of anything else, but in addition to everything else. Bezat Hashem, a person, all of us in our Avodat Hashem, should only seek to do more and never, uh, and never to do less. My friends, uh, today's breakfast in class and the learning for this entire week is dedicated by the Torah Center founders, Michael and Joseph Gadam families, dedicated in loving memory of their father, Naftali ben Leah, Leah ben Nisan Gad. Uh, we want to thank everyone who's joined us in the Daniel S. Loeb Torah Center. And we'd like to extend an invitation for any of you who'd like to support all the Torah that's coming out here on a monthly or yearly basis as well to get in touch with myself or, uh, or the Bekneset on info at ejsny.org. Uh, today's class is uh, dedicated to Le'ilui Nishmat Rachel Bat Moshe, sponsored by the Haruni family uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, George, uh, we wish you condolences on the second anniversary of the uh, Petira of your mother. Also for the Rafu'a Shlema of Eliyahu Shemun Mazal Fortuneh and Chana Bat Sima Vega. And dedicated loving memory of David's father, Elliot Kanbar. Sponsored by Stacy and David Kambar. Hashem should bring you and the entire family. Nechama. And uh, dedicated in honor of Ami Elisheva Simon's 60th birthday, the 19th of Shabbat. For her good health, success, and long life in Torah and Mitzvot. In her merit, may we all merit to see the coming of Mashiach Zedkeno. Amen. Sponsored by James Simon. And sponsored by David E. Ash in honor of you and your substantial capacity to do good today and every day. We also have a beautiful contingent with us here from Brazil who are, listen all the time uh, and who are finally here to see and to join us in the daily, uh, in the daily breakfast in the class live. Hazaku Baruch. My friends, let us begin. Um, we find in our parasha that Paro does not heed the warnings of Moshe and Moshe tells him, listen, if you're not careful, I want you to understand that the makot are going to come your way. And the first makas, dam, tzifadeya, kinim, arov. El Chachamim tell us that the makot were not random plagues, but rather they were calibrated to do two different things. One was to be able to illustrate HaKadosh Baruch Hu's mastery over everything in the world. So, Hashem illustrated that he was the king over water, over sand, over air, over light, over darkness, over the bugs, over the animal kingdom, over reptiles, over fish. Every part and parcel of our universe was touched by the makot. And it's interesting to realize that there isn't a single thing or category of thing that was not struck when it came uh, to the makot. So as an example, even the stars in the sky uh, during the Makav Choshech, their light was put out, okay? The air that they were breathing, 
uh, as an example, we know was uh, affected as well by Choshech in the, uh, in, the, in the second three days where the air became thick. So literally, the viscosity of the air changed. The physical properties of air changed. Of, uh, 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 when you look at the, the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the Makkah of Shechin, we find an airborne disease where boils are literally covering an entire area. It's unbelievable. So what does that element tell you? That sickness is governed by God. And who gets sick? And how sick they get? It's unbelievable. So every single thing was delineated in the story of the Makot. However, our Chachamim tell us as well something else. That it wasn't just what was controlled by God that was the purpose of the Makot. But my friends, also that the Midrash tells us that each and every one of the things that the Egyptians did to be able to torture the Jews was brought back home to roost as an onish, as a punishment when it came back to the Makot. So in other words, uh, the, if the Jewish people did, uh, would, were tortured or subjugated in a certain way by the Egyptians, what did God do? He made sure that that thing was a punishment for them, which is something that we all know, Midah Keneged Midah. My friends, I have a question. These two teachings, they're separate teachings. One is that God was punishing the Egyptians measure for measure on everything that they did. Clear? So as an example, the Egyptians would lock up the ability of the mikvaot for the Jewish women to go to the mikvah. What did that cause? That the Jewish men and the women were not able to be together. So what did God do? He shut off the access of all of Egypt to the rivers. In the Makkah of in the Makkah of Dam, or in the Makkah of Tzifardea. According to one opinion, the Makkah of Tzifardea was not frogs, rather it was crocodiles. The Niles of the crocodile. The, sorry, the crocodiles of the Nile, right? And therefore, anyone that would go down to the water would be torn apart. So my friends, you're looking at this and you're seeing a tit-for-tat punishment in the Makot. But the question is, what was the purpose was it in order to punish them for what they'd done? Or was it in order to show mastery over all these things? My friends, one answer to this is both. But it seems to me to be a little bit haphazard. That it happens to be that God did this in order to illustrate, Ani Hashem I control every element of the universe. And also that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was punishing the Egyptians because when they would go to bathe in the, in the, in the bathhouses, they would make the, the Jews sit there with a candle. They would make them sit with a candle on their head. So in other words, I have a candlestick, but instead I'm going to use the Jew as a human candlestick. The Midrash tells us that's one of the things. So which one, which one is it? So I want to share something that I think is, is magnificent. Our rabbis tell us, that when it came to Avraham Avinu, Avraham Avinu asks God a question. And what is Avraham's question? He asks Hashem, How will I know, you're promising me Eretz Israel. how will I know that my children will get it? 
Now the Chachamim, everybody thinks that, okay, so God answers, your children are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And after that, I'm going to judge the people, I'm going to take them out, I'm going to bring them to Israel. Most people read this Pasuk and they understand, okay, Avram made a mistake, Avram lacked faith, he asked Hashem a question, you're promising me this, how do I know you're going to deliver? And because Avram asked the question, oh ye of little faith, Hashem's like, zap. He punishes him that his children should spend time in Egypt. But perhaps one could understand that that's a very silly interpretation of what's going on here. And I think we can prove that that's a silly interpretation. Two proofs. Proof number one. When it comes to the Akedah, Avram waits until he's a hundred to have Yitzchak. Then God says, bring him to the Akedah. How many questions does Avram have? Zero. Zero. So when it comes to his son being sacrificed, Avram's like, I'm good, I understand everything. But when it comes to like, listen, I'm gonna, Avram's like, I don't know, where's the deed? I'm not sure, how's it gonna work? Do I pay inheritance tax? That's what Avram is worried about. It can't be that Avram has a question about the inheritance of his children getting Israel, but doesn't have a question about the Akedah. Doesn't have a question about his wife getting kidnapped by Paro. Doesn't have a question about the famine that God said, I'm going to bring you to Israel. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be all blessing. He gets there and there's a famine and he needs to leave. It can't be. That's question, that's proof number one. That that's not what's going on in the conversation at the Brit Ben Abetanim. Proof number two. If you remember the very first lesson that we had in this week's parasha, was Va'era, and I appeared. Avram said, uh, Hashem says to Moshe, when it came to the Avot, they never asked me any questions. And look, I said I'm going to take out the Jews from Egypt, and here you are, Lama Hareota. I feel bad, I missed the Avot. Chaval al da'avdin ve'lo mishtakhin. What a shame about those that we've lost. Uh, that will never be forgotten or that are not present, however you interpret it. My friends, it's clear that God is saying that the Avot did not ask those questions. So it can't be that Avram asked Bame'eda and the whole point of why they're here in Egypt is because of Avram's question. Don't tell Moshe why he's asking questions. Oh, the Avot never asked questions. When the whole reason why they're in this pickle is because of a question that Avram asked. It must be that that's not what Avram was saying. So what was Avram saying? And what was God's answer? Avram understood something very simple. Avram understood that the way he was being treated by God was dependent on one thing. What was Avraham's greatest accomplishment? No. See, that's the trick question. Everyone answers that Avram's greatest accomplishment was chesed. That's not true. Huh? Very close. Even closer. Finding Hashem. Let me explain. Chesed was Avram's greatest trait. It was his greatest mitzvah. But that was not his greatest success. And let me explain why. Avram's chesed was not like our chesed. Today, 
People do chesed because they feel bad, they feel guilty. You ever, you ever see one of those te- tele- the television commercials? You're sitting back in your recliner, holding your drink, snacking on whatever you're snacking, all of a sudden it's like, did you know that for $1 a year, you could sustain a starving child in Africa? Remember those commercials? You're sitting there, mid-bite with your snack, right, and your drink, in your couch, in your home theater, okay? They're like, for $1 a year, right? You know, you could, and you feel terrible. Hazitis kid's starving, and for so little, I could do that for him, right? Our chesed, a lot of times, is driven by guilt. They tell an amazing story. Um, I can't remember who it was with, so I'm not going to say it incorrectly. A fellow comes to raise some tzedakah. I think it might have been the briskarov. He comes to raise some money for tzedakah. He walks in and the rabbi gives him a donation. Tells him his whole heartbreaking story. Rabbi gives him a donation. Guy turns around, walk out. Rabbi calls him back, gives him another donation. He says, what's this? He says, you came, you told me your story. My heart broke for you. I felt so bad. I felt guilty. I felt, I gave tzedakah because I felt guilty. I gave tzedakah because I felt bad. I don't want to give tzedakah because I feel bad. I want to give tzedakah from a good place. Not where it's making me feel better. But rather, it's about doing kindness with another Jew. My friends, Avram's kindness was unlike our kindness. His kindness stemmed from the fact that he had found HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In a world that did not understand the God, he had found Hashem. In a world that believed in polytheism to the max, in idol worship, Avram found God by himself. And he finds God, and he does it with his intuition, with his knowledge, with his intelligence. And he asks himself at the end of that question, he asks himself, if everything here came from something, what was the original cause? What was the first cause? He discovers God. And then he asks himself, the Ramchal says, the last question, he says, if there is a first cause and that is God, that means there was a moment when God was here and the world was not. What made God create the world? Why would a being that is infinite, that doesn't need anything, that has no limitations, why would he create and Abraham understood, Olam God created the world in order to do kindness with its inhabitants. The minute Abraham understood that, he therefore became the pillar of Chesed. But that actually is not the first place goal, it was the second place goal. His desire in doing Chesed was to emulate God, which is why. Avram gives the guests everything to eat. And then when they come to say thank you, what does he say? Don't thank me. Thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Say Berkat HaMazon. My friends, Avraham understood that the greatest kindness in the world was to introduce a person to God. There's no greater kindness. You can give a person a lot of things. But there's nothing that you can give someone more than the awareness of their connection Imagine as an example, you see a prince who has no idea that his father is the king. Imagine you give him a dollar. Imagine you give him a thousand dollars. Imagine you give him a million dollars. You buy him a house. You give him a bed. You give him a job. None of that. It all pales in significance. 
to the kindness you could do for him if you said to him, I'm giving you nothing, but I'm giving you the biggest gift in the world. Your last name is Habsburg. Go down the block, knock on the palace door, and tell them you're the king's son. What could I give you that would match that? Nothing. That's why Abraham, in finding God, decides to spend his life doing chesed by way of creating nefashot. Hanefesh asher asu becharan. They create souls. How do you create a soul? By telling that soul what or who it is and what and who is its father. My friends, now we look back at the Brit Ben Abetarim and we look at Avraham Avinu and we suddenly understand something unbelievable. Avram says to God, if you promised me Eretz Israel, I have no questions. If you promised my son Eretz Israel, I have no questions. But do you mean to tell me that my great, 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 great grandchildren will merit Eretz Israel? How do I know that what happened to the whole world around me? Remember, God started with Adam. God talks to Adam. How do we get to a place where we forget God exists? When our grandfather talked to God directly. Where there was a sin and he was banished and all of that. We know it's in the family. In a few short generations, we move from Adam to Noah. The whole of humanity corrupts its way. Abraham Avinu says, God, I know that you're promising that my children, the ones that are like me, will inherit Eretz Israel. But how could I know that my children will be like me? That my children will merit to be in Eretz Israel? How can I know that my children will believe in you like I believe in you? My friends, I wonder what Abraham would say if he saw the Jewish world today. How will I know that my children will believe in you, Hashem? We introduced him to 90% of his grandchildren. Avram's question is not answered in the way he would have wanted. So what does Hashem tell Avraham? Hashem says to Avraham, it's a good question. Do you know what I'm going to do? You found me. You found me using only your mind. You found me with no miracles. Avram gets saved in the furnace of fire, not before he discovers God. And that's how he becomes a God believer. The opposite. He's already a God believer. That's why they throw him in the fire. Hashem says to Avram, I'm not going to take any such chances with your children. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for your kids. I'm going to put on a clinic. In the world of Avraham, in the world of Egypt, it wasn't a God. It was gods. There was a God of the Nile, of water. There was a God of the sun. There was a God of the moon, or maybe a goddess. There was a God of the reptiles. Right? There was a God of the, of the dogs. Everything had its own godly power. And that's what the society believed in. And therefore Hashem says to Abraham, I'll promise you one thing. I will show your children something. I will show your children that I am God and there's nothing else. Ubechol, listen carefully to the words now of what we're saying in the parasha. 
ובכל אלוהי מצרים אעשה שפטים. In all the gods of Egypt, I will do wonders. I'm going to attack every idol. I'm going to show dominance over every part of creation. What God did in that moment was He planted in the Jewish people's heart an understanding of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. That's what God did in Egypt. But my friends, it wasn't just that God was showing random dominance over everything. But what He was doing is, there's two ways to pick a winner. One is by choosing which is the winner, and the other is by eliminating all of the losers. One has a chance that you're wrong, and the other has no chance that you're wrong. Avram picks a winner. Avram finds Hashem. Hashem says, I'm going to shut the door on every other door in the hallway, and they'll only have one door to come to, mine. But my friends, what were the Egyptians doing? Is it a happy coincidence that every makah that God wanted to be able to illustrate His dominance, the Egyptians had randomly uh, subjugated the Jews in that area? No. Exactly what God was trying to do was what the Egyptians were trying to do. Let me explain. When the Jews came down to Egypt, what did they bring with them? What is the first thing that happens when Yaakov Avinu comes down to Egypt? Sorry? Incorrect. That precedes Yaakov. The minute Yaakov, as the symbol of Jew, of Jews, comes down to Egypt, what's the first thing that we read? Nope. Well, to be more accurate, be more accurate, he did not hug Yosef. Yosef hugged him. What was the first thing, therefore, that happened with Yaakov in Egypt? He said Shema. That means that when the Jew came to Egypt, what was the first declaration? Now, Nathan, say what you said again. And what happened? Why do you think the Nile rose? I need you to hear this. This is so powerful. To, to show deference to, to Hashem. Excellent! So no, most of us are like, oh, Yaakov's a tzaddik. The Nile rose. This is much more than just that. The Nile was the primary god of the Egyptians. Because their agricultural society did not rely on rain for growth, it relied on the irrigation systems of the Nile, of the Nile overflowing its banks. They worshipped the Nile. So when Yaakov came, Yaakov planted a flag, like, remember when they went to the moon and they put the flag of America, right, on the moon? When you plant a flag, you're declaring this land in the name of, Yaakov comes and he knows they're going down to Egypt. And what does he say? Shema Yisrael! Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. He declares that there is only one God. Only Hashem. Which God is the God of that area at that time? The Nile. What does the Nile do? It comes to rise, not to Yaakov per se, but to Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. 
The Egyptians understood that their God was subservient to the Jews' God. You hear that? What were they in the middle of when the Nile rose? A famine, right? We all know. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, right? What happens when Yaakov comes? The famine ends. Again, everybody misunderstands this. We're like, oh, wow, fantastic. A tzaddik came and the famine ended because Yaakov's a tzaddik. Well, there was 12 tzaddikim. All the shevatim were in Egypt. It didn't end. How come the famine ends when Yaakov comes to Egypt? The answer is not only because Yaakov comes to Egypt. The answer was that in the Nile's subservience to God, to Shema Yisrael, what happened? The Nile needed to defer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Where does famine come from in Egypt? The Nile. That's why in the dream, where are the cows coming from? The Nile. Fat, skinny. Where does that come from in Egypt? The Nile. My friends, if that's the case, we start to understand what the Egyptians were doing. They weren't only trying to subjugate the Jews. They were trying to subjugate the power that subjugated their power. They were trying to override the power of Ammonai. And now you hear the words of Paro and they're much sharper. He says, Moshe, who you hear from? And Moshe says, the last words in the world that Paro wants to hear. I come in the name of Ammonai. Master, Lord of the Jews. Shelachet ami, send my people and let them serve me. And what does Paro say? Mi Hashem. What is Paro saying? I never heard of God? No. The Egyptians, they know very well who God is. They know very well what happened with Yaakov. They know very well. What he's saying is, look around you, Moses. When you came, Ammonai defeated the Nile. But in the 210 years since, where have we been? Where has your God been? Trumped by our God. So the plan to subjugate the Jews was a much larger plan. And my friends, that is what Hashem tells Avraham. They took away from you. And how did they do that? They found every God under the sun and they figured out how to force that on the Jewish people. And that, my friends, created doubt in the heart of the Jewish people. I mean, it's hard to keep emunah when, when for 200 years you're enslaved, when you're seeing sacrifices being brought to all these other gods, and it seems like, I'll tell, I don't know, from afar, it seems like their God knows what he's doing. Our God was he at the lunch? We read at the end of the story of Egypt, and the Jewish people believed in Hashem and Moshe Avdo. What does that tell you? That up until that point, they were deficient in their belief in Hashem and in Moshe, his messenger. My friends, what the Egyptians caused was a lack of faith in the Jews. 
The Egyptians didn't do that by accident. They did that on purpose. That's why those two things are really the same. When God said, I'm going to defeat every power, what was Hashem also punishing the Egyptians for? For everything that they did. What did they do? They did everything that the Jewish people should find power in everything else but their own God. So they would think that there was no reason to turn to Hashem and to pray. My friends, I want to share two points with this and with that will end. And they're very brief. Point number one is that a person needs to realize that when they do damage to somebody, there are two judgments that happen to you. Barminna, not you. There are two judgments that happen to a person when you damage somebody, when you cause them damage. Let's say it's a business, let's say it's something else. One thing you're going to have to pay a price for is the actual damage you caused. You took $100,000, right? You denied them, you cut them out, you took their commission, you stole the sale, whatever you did. You're going to have to pay for the damage of what you took from them. That money. That's going to come back to haunt you. Okay? That's the first lesson. Obvious. However, what we're learning here is that there's a second thing you have to pay for. If you caused in this person a lack of faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you're going to pay the price for ruining his faith in Hashem. If he lost faith in humanity, decided not to trust people anymore, you're going to pay the price for that ruined faith in your life. You know why? Because God looks not only at the actions that took place, but also at the depth of feeling that happens within the person's inner, inner world. That's lesson number one. How careful we have to be with hurting other people. Because it's not just that we need to make up for the thing that we took, but the thing that we took, the damage that we caused, the hurt that we brought, it has a knock-on effect in the person's inner world. And Hashem is looking. And God says, Egyptians, you cost my people faith, I'm going to restore that faith at your expense. The second lesson, my friends, is in our own understanding of what Bure Olam is and does. We need to be able to drive home into our consciousness this mastery of HaKadosh Baruch Hu over everything. I was thinking the other day in prayer, we say a lot of different specific things in the prayers. Hashem is Shomea Tefillah, Hashem is Rofei Kobasam Aflullah. So, Rofei, right, he's Rofei Rahamamine Emanata. You know, you are, you are uh, what's it called? Hanuna Marbele Sloach. We define God in 18, 19 different ways throughout the Berachot. However, my friends, God has many, many, many other names. And a lot of times, maybe one of the challenges of the Amidah is that even though there's 19 Berachot, I kind of feel that we focus in so strongly by repetition on these 19 things, we forget all the lanes in between those 19 things. Let me give you a, a, a way of understanding that. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he could heal a person because he's a good doctor. But there's another thing that God could do. Another thing God could do. You know, in the olden days, they used to tell people who suffered from difficult uh, uh, breathing or other elements, they would tell them to go to certain climates. So in all the Sfarim you find that great tzaddikim, they move to a certain town, they move to a certain place, and their breathing issues or whatever it was went away because the air in that place was different. My friends, 
Does God need to heal you? Maybe all God needs to do is change the weather or get you a job in a new city. You see, a lot of times, what we're focused on is, Hashem, please, I need help with Hashem, make me smarter. I'm dealing with the situation. Hashem doesn't have to make you smarter. It's not the smartest people that come up with the best ideas all the time. Sometimes a person who just got lucky. So if you're sitting there in your 19 lanes, you're forgetting that God put out the sun and the stars and the moon. You're forgetting that God caused the alligators to come. That God brought animals from every climate and every region down to Egypt. If you were praying for wild animals in Egypt, what would you have prayed for? Hashem, please let the local crocodiles, you know, do their job. No one is praying for a polar bear to come down to uh, the Giza pyramids. And yet, a polar bear came down to the Giza pyramids, uh, Chachamim tell us. There's things that God could do for you that you haven't even thought of. So go back to Egypt in your mind. Recognize that Abraham's question, how will my children, how will they believe? Hashem says, I'm going to give them a template for belief that will last them a lifetime. Until this day, even in a super secular person, every single Jew, secular, not secular, knows about Passover. The single most done mitzvah in all of the Torah is Seder night. The Maxwell House Haggadah. My friends, that Haggadah in a house that has no Judaism is the result of the promise that God made to Abraham. They'll refer back, they'll tell the story, and you know what, maybe it won't make a difference to generation X or Y or Z. But you know what's going to come after generation Zers? We're going to start all over again. We're going to go back to generation A, generation Avraham. Hashem should bless us to see the proliferation, like it says before the coming of Mashiach, and the world will be filled with the knowledge of God speedily in our days.